let me start by saying there's a story gripping St. John's uh, right now. Um, if you're a visitor to St. John's, you probably aren't aware of it, but those of us who work and live in St. John's are acutely aware of it. Um, it's hard to drive around the city and not see um, posters of a missing person. And it's a tragic story of a missing person. Her name is Courtney Lake. And the young lady is only 24 years old. She's been missing since June 24th. And um, as I said, it's a tragic story, especially for the family that is now fearing the worst. And what I find interesting about that story is two things as we set up into today's passage um, from the Bible. Number one, turns out it was dash cam video. Dash cam video from an unrelated passing vehicle happened to catch something that led the police to arrest a key suspect. Dash cam video, um, kind of remarkable. Cameras are everywhere today. It's hard to imagine even getting to church without being recorded on a camera. Um, so cameras are everywhere and they, they see uh, a lot of what we do. That's the first thing I find interesting and that'll, you'll understand why that's important later. Number two, I think in this story, it's kind of hard to imagine that somebody doesn't know something. How can a 24-year-old young lady go missing for two months and nobody knows anything? So I'm convinced somebody knows something and they're not talking. They're not talking. They're keeping it a secret. It's a secret sin, I guess, if you'd like to call it that. And today we're going to look at a passage in the Bible about a secret sin, actually. We're going to continue through a sermon series that I started, I don't know, maybe a year ago, through the book of Joshua. Uh, it's a sermon series called Realizing the Promises of God. All of the elders are working through a different Bible uh, of the book, so when we get the opportunity to preach, we know exactly what we're preaching on. It's simply the next chapter where we left off. I don't know when I'll be preaching next, but I know it's going to be on Joshua chapter 8, so I can begin to prepare for that. But today we're going to look at Joshua chapter 7. This turns out to be part 6 in the sermon series, and... Um, you probably can't connect the dots because it's been a while since I did the earlier versions, uh, the earlier chapters in the book. So here's a, quick, here's a quick review of the book of Joshua up to where we are today. So in chapter one of Joshua, actually Moses is now dead. Uh, so this is the sixth book in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses dies, and we get the book of Joshua. It's the sixth book in your Bible. So it starts with uh, the death of Moses. The 40 years of wandering in the desert is over. God tells and, uh, Joshua that he's going to be the next leader, and he installs Joshua as the next leader of Israel. And he tells him to be courageous. And then our, in our next chapter of Joshua, we see that he sends spies into Jericho. And we meet Rahab, the prostitute, who turns out to be King David's great-great-grandmother. And then in chapters 3 and 4, the nation of Israel crosses the Jordan. It's a powerful, supernatural display of God's power. He spreads the Jordan River, and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people actually cross over the Jordan River. Then in chapter 5, we saw renewal of the covenantal signs. For some reason, when Israel was in the desert for 40 years, they stopped doing a few things. One of them was circumcision. So tens of thousands of men who were now in their 20s, 30s, weren't circumcised. So they cross over the Jordan. They're now in a place called Gilgal. And God instructs Joshua to circumcise the, uh, the nation of men. It's my famous circumcision sermon. If you want to know more on the topic, <laughs> you can check out our website. I use the word 43 times. And uh, 
That was chapter 5. Glad to leave it behind. It, was a, it wasn't an easy passage. Um, chapter 6, we see that Joshua undertakes the siege of Jericho. Uh, so they march around it seven times. You know the story from Sunday school. They march around it seven times, and they devote the city to destruction. That's Joshua chapter 6. As their first city of conquest, they needed to devote the entire city to destruction. No plunder was to be taken. Everything was to be destroyed, or at least was supposed to be destroyed. This is where we pick up Joshua chapter 7. So I encourage you to open up your Bibles, open up your Bible apps. I think Dave's got the text for us. You can follow along on the screen. This is the ESV translation. So we're going to read all 26 verses, and then my hope is that by the end of the sermon, we'll know more about the character of God, uh, and we'll see that there's some application to us here today. And of course, we'll point to the gospel repeatedly. So let's start and read together in verse 1 of the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Joshua writes, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up. In other words, don't send the whole army. Do not, uh, do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people. And they fled before the people of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men. And they chased them before the gate as far as Sherebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Question mark. Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us off from the name of the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And God responds. The Lord said to Joshua in verse 10, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant and I have commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They have turned their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall, t you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot, he's going to do it by lot, which is interesting. That the, Lord that the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by household, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken 
with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near, he's ca they're casting lots, you understand that. And he brought near his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil, he's talking about Jericho when they plundered Jericho. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, which means Babylon, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers. Lost it in my passage. Maybe I have to look up here. <laughs> Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and daughters, and oxen, donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring Israel? Why did you bring trouble on us today? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire. And they stoned them with stones, and they raised the, over them a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is not an easy text. We have to be careful how we interpret it. But we, we trust in the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and that it's fruitful or useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Why? So that we would be equipped for every good work. So this, this passage, there must be some value in this passage. And so this morning, my hope is that we will look at it and we will learn something about the character of God and that we will see how it applies to us today and it will point to the gospel and why we desperately need the gospel. At first reading, you might think to yourself, I don't see a whole lot that relates to me, Paul. We don't rise up and attack foreign cities anymore. Um, and, and when someone steals, we surely don't stone the entire family. If that's what you're thinking, let me help us take a little bit of a closer look. I have a few things that we'll look at in the passage that we'll consider, and then a few concluding points, and we'll be done in about 20 to 25 minutes. So the first thing I'd like to point out for you in this passage is the bookends. This chapter has beautiful bookends this way or this way whichever way you want to think of it so the the first bookend the second half of verse one says and the anger of the lord burned against the people of israel the anger of the lord burned against the people of israel that's the first bookend 
at the back of the passage, at the end of the passage, you can jump to the end, partway through verse 26 we read, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. So in the beginning he's burning with anger, at the end he's turning from anger. And in the middle of the passage, verse 12 is the turning point. Josh, God speaking to Joshua says in verse 12, I will be with you no more unless you dot, dot, dot. And he proceeds to give him instructions on what to do. So right away, I think you'll see that this is a story of sin followed by restoration. If you hear nothing else from me this morning, and I hope to convince you, this is a story much more about the mercy of God than it is about the judgment of God. In verse 1, we learn about a man named Achan. We see his pedigree. He comes from the tribe of Judah, which incidentally, so does Jesus. We learn he steals something. It says he took some of the devoted things, some of the devoted things. And you say, what's that? And that's when we have to think back to chapter 6 in Joshua. When Israel undertook its first conquest, it crossed over the river and it attacked uh, a wicked city called Jericho in the Canaanite land. They sacked Jericho, if you want to put it that way. It was a mighty Canaanite city. It was on the top of a hill. It was a double-walled city. Uh, it had an area of about six or seven acres, a circumference of about one and a half kilometers all the way around. Um, it was generally thought to be impregnable. We know that it was a wicked city, uh, and we know that God used Israel as his instrument of judgment. And in chapter 6, we read, it was abundantly clear the instructions that God gave to Israel. Verse 17 of chapter 6 says, the city is to be devoted to the Lord, devoted to the Lord. So in later conquests, Israel is allowed to plunder the cities and is allowed to keep things, but not in the case of Jericho. The bronze, silver, and gold, yes, that's allowed to be kept. That's a precious metal. They take that and they keep it for the tabernacle and future temple, but everything else, nothing is to be kept. It's all to be destroyed and put to fire and devoted to the Lord. Nobody gets to keep anything from Jericho. It was Francis Schaeffer who argued that Jericho was likely a first, or we could interpret it as a first fruits. It needed to be given as a first fruits, like the first harvest of the year that was burned and given to the Lord. This was a first fruits to God. It was to be devoted. And under Levit Levitical law, uh, this was not just um, given to God, it belonged to God. So Jericho was the first fruit. So to steal something from Jericho, you were stealing from something that belonged to God. And it is a continuity of theme that travels through the Old Testament. In the New Testament, though, we read in James 1 that it's we who are believers who are a kind of first fruits. I'm not sure if you've ever thought of that before as the fact that we are a first fruits. And it's later in Romans that Paul teaches the church that we, as believers who have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that we have indwelling in us is a first fruits. It's a first fruits of what will come at the second coming of Christ. And, and, and that will be amazing. But to think that what we have is a first fruits. All that to say God was clear. Israel was to be obedient. They were instructed to put everything to the sword in Jericho. But we see right away that this wasn't entirely the case. A man named Achan kept something for himself. God tells Joshua in verse 11, they have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. And you say, oh, is this really a big deal? So we took a few things. 
He took a few things. Verse 1 says, the people of Israel broke faith. Or your translation might say, the people of Israel sinned. There is a corporate aspect to this sin. It teaches us that no sin is ever conducted in isolation. It's never contained or constrained. Or we lie to ourselves and say to ourselves, this sin won't hurt anybody. Nobody knows about this. But sin has a, has a way of, of, uh, of, of affecting others. My sin affects others. Your sin affects others. We know this. We see it in our families. We see it in our church. No sin is ever committed in isolation. And so how does this story unfold? Well, we read about their second military conquest. It doesn't go so good. Or grammatically correct, it doesn't go so well. Verses 2 to 5 unfold a botched attempt to topple the city of Ai, and 36 men are killed. This is the only place in the book of Joshua where losses are recorded. For all of their conquests, this is the only place where Israel is recorded to have taken losses. Verse 5 says, and, their hearts, and the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Whose hearts? Israel's hearts. This was a complete role reversal because earlier, in earlier chapters, it was the hearts of the Canaanite peoples that had melted and become like water. Now it's Israel's turn. And Joshua's devastated. He, he tears his clothes. He falls before the ark and he puts dust on his head. We don't tend to do that sort of thing today, but it was customary at the time. The more interesting thing is his prayer. Starting in verse 7, it says, And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us off. And what will you do for your great name? So when I first read this, I said, oh, come on, Joshua. You know what the problem is. But he didn't know what the problem was. We know that because we read verse 1. But at that point, at that moment, all that he could perceive was that God wasn't keeping his promise. Because what had Achan, what Achan had done was still an unconfessed secret sin. And Joshua didn't know this. From all that he could perceive, God wasn't keeping his promise. Jennifer Wilkin describes it like this. She says, what Joshua prays is an anguished prayer to a mystifying God that pleads for the people's safety from danger and for God's honor. And I think we've prayed those kind of prayers before. When my circumstances look as though God is not who he says he is, but my heart clings to the hope that he is. And so we cry out in anguish prayers. That's when we cry out. He didn't know there was a problem, but yet there was. And so he prays, and, and we'll talk about what happens um, out of that. But I don't think there's anything to reproach Joshua here. It's simply an anguished prayer to God. And God does respond in verse 10. He tells Joshua that some of the devoted things from Jericho are among the camp. Verse 12 is particularly chilling. He says that the people of Israel are now devoted to destruction. That Israel's devoted to destruction. God essentially says, you want the stuff? Then be as the stuff. You want to be like Jericho? Then be like Jericho. So there's a reminder here for us to take our sin seriously. N do we have a proper view of our sin? Do we have a proper view 
of, uh, a fear of God. And the, the lesson here is that Israel failed at Ai because they had sinned. And 36 men died, and 36 dads didn't come home from the battle. And it was absolutely tragic. But throughout history, throughout redemptive history, as God redeems this church to himself, we see that he has a settled antagonism towards sin. This doesn't mean that every time we see suffering, it's a result of sin. It could be, but we should ask the question, is there sin? And we should graciously, as a church, pull it out, bring it into the light, um, seek forgiveness, confess, seek forgiveness, and restore relationship. Back to the text. Starting in verse 6, 13, we see God unfold a plan. By casting lots, by casting lots, the secret sin will be revealed. And Joshua follows the plan. Slowly, very slowly, Achan is revealed. First, tri the tribe is selected. Then the clan is selected. And then the household is selected. And then the man is selected. And I ask the question, what was Achan thinking? This must have taken... I don't know, a couple of hours of casting lots and pulling out short straws or however they did it. But, and Aiken doesn't say anything. And I say to myself, why didn't he just say, stop, I did it. There's no need to go through all this process. And I'll tell you why. At least I think I know why. Because he, he thought he was going to get away with it. Right to the last second, he thought he was going to get away with it. And secret sins are like that. They like to stay in the dark. And only once they're confessed um, do they come out. Or once they're caught do they come out and are confessed. Achan thought he was going to get away with it right down to the last minute. Just like the person or persons who know something about Courtney Lake, this young lady who's missing. It will remain a secret until they are caught and then they will confess. But this was not just any small sin. This was not a sin of ignorance. This was not an unintentional sin. God says in verse 15, he has done an outrageous thing. He's stolen from God. So I hope you see the gravity here. In Numbers 15, God calls this sort of thing a high-handed sin. The person reviles the Lord, needs to be cut off. He knew what he was doing. You might ask the question, well, did the punishment fit the crime? Did the punishment fit the crime? Seems kind of harsh to stone and burn the entire family. The commentaries I've read have suggested that well, it was highly unlikely that Aiken's family was completely in the dark. Could you really imagine Dad coming home from the Battle of Jericho, digging a hole in the middle of the tent? If you've ever camped in a tent, you know that it's kind of an intimate thing. Dad digs a hole in the middle of a tent, buries a bunch of stuff, and nobody knows about it? So it's probable that the family knew about it and they concealed it. He sinned. By stealing and coveting, they sin by concealing. No sin is ever committed in isolation, and we need to remember that our sins affect others. Uh, again, I said this before, we, we see it in our own families and in our church. Ultimately, we see in the story the entire family is stoned. It's burned. It's a difficult passage. The bodies are dumped in the valley of Achor, and a pile of stones is put over top of them. Probably 20 or 30 people, absolutely tragic. And so you ask the question, is this a merciful God? Would God, why, I, I don't see mercy here. And I tell you, there is mercy in this story. Far more mercy than judgment. Verse 1 says the entire nation of Israel had sinned. Several hundred thousand people 
are going to be preserved and not destroyed, not wiped out. Several hundred thousand, the entire nation will be preserved because this piece of sin is removed from the nation. It's an interesting pattern. Prayer of Joshua. Prayer leads to the revealing of a sin, which led to the, a solution being provided. The instructions are followed. The sin is taken seriously. There's cleansing, there's restoration, and ultimately a memorial is built. This is the second memorial that Joshua has built. The first one was at Gilgal. As they crossed over the Jordan River, they picked up some stones and they built a memorial in Gilgal. It's so, it's so that the people of Israel would not forget because they had a history of memory lapses, and I think, I think we do too. As fallen people, we need memorials. If you walk around St. John's, there's lots of memorials. Um, the War Memorial is an excellent example. Memorial University is a living memorial to all those who died in the First and Second World War. By the way, the Valley of Achor is not mentioned in many other places in your Bible. Maybe one other time. It isn't mentioned in many other places. But many years later, there is a man who mentions it. His name is Hosea. He's one of the minor prophets near the end of your Old Testament. In chapter 2, he said, The Valley of Achor, also known as the Valley of Trouble, one day, someday will become a door of hope. Door of hope. And I don't know what Hosea meant by that, but I do know that that can only ultimately be accomplished through Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, through the new covenant. We can put our hope in many things, but it's only a hope grounded in the beauty and majesty of Jesus that will restore us in a proper relationship with the Father, that will redeem us. My, my wife reminded me this week that God doesn't want me to be happy. He doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. So this is, a, this is a, a story of redemption through history of God wanting to create a holy people for himself. And so there are applications for us as we look at this passage. And I have, I have three, just three quick things, and then we'll be finished for the morning. Number one, covetousness. This is what caused Achan to fall. Covetousness, what is it? It's wrongly placed desire. The reason Achan stole and lied is because God was not his supreme treasure. He was not satisfied in all that God had promised him. And do you know there's no difference in the Hebrew word covet and the Hebrew word desire? Coveting simply means desiring. And so coveting is simply desiring something too much. And so you ask the question, what's too much? When do I know if I'm coveting something or I'm just simply desiring something too much? And I, my answer to that is you need a measuring stick. You need a measuring stick. And it's not what, how much money you have at a bank account because I've tried that one. I've said to myself, there's enough money in the bank. I can, I can afford that gadget, whatever it is I want, that latest piece of technology. But uh, that's not a good way of thinking. It's not whether your friends or family have something and you want it too. You can't compare yourself to others. That's not good thinking. In fact, I, I had an experience this past week. We were camping in Terranova National Park up at Newman Sound. We took a little drive through something called Loop A, Loop A in Newman Sound, that's the service loop. That's the loop that has plumbing, electrical, water. Um, and that's where the really big rigs park. And there's some beautiful looking machines in there, far better than the little pop-up trailer we have. And it's an opportunity to test your desires because it's, it's nice stuff to look at. That's the season of life that I'm in right now. I tend to covet stuff, toys, 
quads, side-by-sides, snowmobiles, Winnebago's. I love to go to coastal outdoors. I love to go to fun and fast and Honda One and look at all that kind of stuff. That's just my season of life. And I'm not sure what season of life you're in. Maybe you covet a better salary, a better job, power, influence, to be pain-free, children, loving friendships, a healthy family. These are all things you might covet. But coveting simply means desiring something too much. And I asked the question, how do you know when you covet something too much? And I I said you need a measuring stick, and you can't look in your bank account, and you can't look to what other people have justified. You can't do that. But what you can do is you can ask and you can compare it. How much do I desire that? If I desire that too much, how how does that compare to how much I desire God? And it is a spiritual thing. So you're, you know, hopefully... Hopefully, the thing that you desire is outweighed by your desire for God. And if it's something like this, then, then perhaps you're coveting the object. But simply said, if, if desiring something, if coveting something leads you away from God, if it leads you away from good, solid biblical principles, then you are, and it leads you away from God, not towards God, then you're coveting. By comparison, not coveting means not desiring anything that diminishes God as your supreme treasure. And are we perfect? No. Are we imperfect? Absolutely, every single one of us. And when we follow our desire, sometimes we lose self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? Uh, During our winter spring, we uh, had some life groups. All of the life groups did the same curriculum. It was a book we read together as a church called Respectable Sins, written by the late Jerry Bridges. And in chapter 18, he dealt with the lack of self-control, and he, he had a definition for it. Maybe, Dave, we can put that up. What is self-control? It is the governance or prudent control of one's desires, cravings, impulses, emotions, and passions. It is saying no when we should say no. It is moderation in legitimate desires and activities and absolute restraint in areas that are clearly sinful. But here's the thing. You, You can't do this on your own. You can't do this on your own. The only way you're going to pull this off is by the continual exposure of your mind to the Word of God, to prayer, and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. We need to run to Christ, ask that He be sufficient enough, and to find our identity in Christ. We keep saying that as a church, find our identity in Christ. It's not easy. It's easy to say those words, but it's, it's much harder to do in practice. So my second point of application is a reminder that our sins affect others. Although Achan sinned and his family helped conceal it, God said that all of Israel had sinned. It's something we need to grapple with today, that the sin of others, the sin of others affects others. My sin, secret or public, affects others. A sin never occurs or stays an isolated thing. How can we wrap our mind around that? Uh, There's a helpful analogy by John Piper. It's the analogy of uh, the mantles, the earth's mantle. You understand that we live on what's the cooled crust of the earth, and below the crust there's the molten mantle, okay, and it's hot. Um, And it spurts out occasionally in in volcanoes. So here's the analogy that John Piper wrote, and I think we have the text the screen this is what john piper wrote he said the hearts of humanity and you have to visualize this the hearts of humanity are like the molten mantle beneath the surface of the earth the molten lava 
beneath the earth is the universal wickedness of the human heart, the rebellion against God and the selfishness towards people. We all have this. And it's, it's down inside. Think of the earth's mantle. But here and there, a volcano of rebellion bursts forth, which God sees fit to judge immediately. He may do so by causing the, the scorching, destructive lava to flow not only down the mountain, which erupted, but also across the valleys. Across the valleys, which did not erupt, but which also have the same molten lava beneath the surface. So what does John mean by this? I think what he means is sometimes lava might fall on your head as the result of someone else's sin, and you get hurt. You get hurt too. This is when we really need the gospel. We run to Jesus. We remember how much we've been forgiven so that we can for forgive. We remember how much grace we've been given so that we can show grace. We believe Romans 8, that there will be mercy in it because sometimes we will get unintentionally struck with lava and we know that there's mercy in it. And we know that we don't deserve to escape but we know that Jesus has absorbed the wrath, but we know that this life will have affliction and tribulation, and that will take different forms. Sometimes it's for our correcting. Sometimes it's because um, God is simply doing it in love as part of our sanctification, and it will, it will look different, but we know that God is in it, and God has a plan. Here's a side point. Each of us needs an accurate suffering theology, an accurate suffering theology. If you don't have this figured out, you're likely going to end up in one of two theological ditches when the storms of life occur. Back in mid-June, we had a guest speaker, Paul Carter from Orillia, Ontario. We have some people from Ontario, you know where Orillia is, from Orillia Baptist Church, and he talked about the storms of life, and he talked about two theological ditches that you might end up in when the storms of life hit and you face tribulation. He said, in, in one ditch, you have the prosperity gospel, I'm hurting, therefore God must not like me. I'm doing something wrong. In the other ditch, you might say, I'm hurting, therefore, well, maybe God's not in charge. God's not truly sovereign. Neither of these are biblically correct. I don't have time to unpack a full suffering theology here, but here's my, here's my hope and my prayer that all of us would work on this before the storms of life occur. We need an accurate and helpful suffering theology. I recommend you talk to an elder or an elder in your church if you're visiting, that you join a life group or a small group of some kind where you can get support or check out the bookstore uh, like the one we have downstairs. So my third point of application and we're almost done. And this is what every sermon does. We turn our eyes towards Jesus. And we're going to sing that song now shortly, but we're all going to struggle with secret sin at different seasons of our life. And it Here's, here's my point of encouragement. It's not going to define you. It's not going to be the billboard of your life. My, my wife read something this week, and it went like this. It said, was King David a murderer? No. Was King David an adulterer? No. But did King David sin, and did he conduct murderous and adulterous activities? Absolutely. Absolutely. And he confessed it, and he repented, and he was restored. So whatever sin you're hiding. It's not your label. It's not the billboard of your life. Confess, repent, and with a gracious church, work for restoration. This can only be done through Jesus, through the work that he did on the cross. 
And I pray and I ask that we would do this soon before the volcanic lava of that sin erupts and it ends up in hurting somebody else unintentionally. We can truly sing, though, the words of turn your eyes upon Jesus because what Jesus has done is he's taken the wrath for that. He's absorbed the wrath and we stand righteous before the Father. These, this verse 2, and you'll, we'll sing it now shortly, it says, over us sin no more hath dominion. That means it's not hanging on to your ankle. That means you're not enslaved to it anymore. Over us sin no more hath dominion for more than conquerors we are. Conquerors how? Conquerors through Jesus. This is Romans 8. We are not condemned ultimately. You can put your trust and hope in that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of Joshua chapter 7. It's a difficult passage to grapple with. A difficult passage, but you are a merciful God and you are an unchanging God. And your character in the Old Testament is the same as your character in the New Testament. We see that you have a settled antagonism towards sin and you want to create a holy people for yourself and you've been doing that for thousands of years. So Lord, we pray that you would help us with our sin. That you would help us understand that through the work of Jesus on the cross and the new covenant, we do stand righteous and holy in your sight. But Lord, we do pray that we would pursue holiness, that we would, that we would, through the enabling power of your Holy Spirit, identify and reveal the sin in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would work on that um, and that as a church, we would encourage and edify each other in that process. Help us not be a church that judges or condemns and hurts people when they sin, but be a church that's a hospital where people can come and they feel safe to be sinners because that's what we are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your graciousness today. Bless us now as we close in one more song. Amen.